Section 20 of Europe Revised. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe Revised by Irvin S. Cobb. Chapter 10. Modes of the Moment. A Fashion Article. Part 1. Among the fur-bearing races the adult male of the French species easily excels. Some fine peltries are to be seen in Italy, and there is a type of farming Englishman who wears a stiff set of burnishers projecting out round his face in a circular effect, suggestive of a halo that has slipped down. In connection with whiskers I have heard the Russians highly commended. They tell me that, from a distance, it is very hard to distinguish a mishook from a bosky dell, whereas a grand duke nearly always reminds one of something tasty and luxuriant in the line of ornamental arbor-work. The German military man specializes in mustaches, preference being given to the Texas longhorn mustache and the walrus and kitty-cat styles. A dehorned German officer is rarely found, and a muley one is practically unknown. But the French lead all the world in whiskers, both the wildwood variety and the domesticated kind trained on a trellis. I mention this here at the outset, because no Frenchman is properly dressed unless he is whiskered also, such details properly appertain to a chapter on European dress. Probably every free-born American citizen has, at some time in his life, cherished the dream of going to England and buying himself an outfit of English clothes just as every woman has had hopes of visiting Paris and stocking up with Parisian gowns on the spot where they were created, and where, so she assumes, they will naturally be cheaper than elsewhere. Those among us who no longer harbor those fancies are the men and women who have tried these experiments. After she has paid the tariff on them, a woman is pained to note that her Paris gowns have cost her as much as they would cost her in the United States. So I have been told by women who have invested extensively in that direction. And though a man, by the passion of the moment, may be carried away to the extent of buying English clothes, he usually discovers, on returning to his native land, that they are not adapted to withstand the trying climatic conditions and the critical comments of press and public in this country. What was contemplated as a triumphal re-entrance becomes a foot-trace to the nearest ready-made clothing store. English clothes are not meant for Americans, but for Englishmen to wear. That is a great cardinal truth which Americans would do well to ponder. Possibly you have heard that an Englishman's clothes fit him with an air. They do so. They fit him with a lot of air around the collar, and a great deal of air adjacent to the waistband and through the slack of the trousers. Frequently they fit him with such an air that he is entirely surrounded by space, as in the case of a vacuum bottle. Once there was a Briton whose overcoat collar hugged the back of his neck, so they knew by that he was no true Briton, but an impostor, and they put him out of the Union. In brief, the kind of English clothes best suited for an American to wear is the kind Americans make. I knew these things in advance, or anyway I should have known them. Nevertheless, I felt our trip abroad would not be complete unless I brought back some London clothes. I took a look at the shop windows and decided to pass up the ready-made things. The coat shirt, the shaped sock, the collar that will fit the neckband of a shirt, and other common American commodities seem to be practically unknown in London. The English dress shirt has such a dinky little bosom on it that by rights you cannot refer to it as a bosom at all. It comes nearer to being what women used to call a gimp. 
Every show window where I halted was jammed to the gunwales with thick, fuzzy woolen articles and inflammatory plaid waistcoats, and articles in crash for tropical wear. Even through the glass you could note each individual crash with distinctness. The London shopkeeper adheres steadfastly to this arrangement. Into his window he puts everything he has in his shop except the customer. The customer is in the rear, with all avenues of escape expertly fenced off from him by the proprietor and the clerks, but the stock itself is in the show window. There are just two department stores in London where, according to the American viewpoint, the windows are attractively dressed. One of these stores is owned by an American, and the other, I believe, is managed by an American. In Paris there are many shops that are veritable jewel boxes for beauty and taste, but these are the small specialty shops, very expensive and highly perfumed. The Paris department stores are worse jumbles even than the English department stores. When there is a special sale underway, the bargain counters are rigged up on the sidewalks. There, in the open air, buyer and seller will chaffer and bicker, and wrangle and quarrel, and kiss and make up again, for all the world to see. One of the free sights of Paris is a frugal Frenchman, with his face extensively haired over, pawing like a sky terrier through a heap of marked-down lingerie, picking out things for the female members of his household to wear, now testing some material with his tongue, now holding a most personal article up in the sunlight to examine the fabric, while the wife stands humbly, dumbly by, waiting for him to complete his selections. So far as London was concerned, I decided to deny myself any extensive orgy in haberdashery. From similar motives, I did not invest in the lounge suit to which an Englishman is addicted. I doubted whether it would fit the lounge we have at home, though with stretching it might at that. My choice finally fell on an English raincoat and a pair of those baggy knee breeches such as an Englishman wears when he goes to Scotland for the moor shooting, or to the National Gallery, or any other damp, misty, rheumatic place. I got the raincoat first. It was built to my measure, at least that was the understanding, but you give an English tailor an inch and he takes an L. This particular tailor seemed to have labored under the impression that I was going to use my raincoat for holding large public assemblies or social gatherings in. Nothing that I could say convinced him that I desired it for individual use, so he modeled it on a generous spreading design, big at the bottom and sloping upward toward the top like a pagoda. Equipped with guy ropes and a center pole, it would make a first-rate marquee for a garden party. In case of bad weather, the refreshments could be served under it. But as a raincoat, I did not particularly fancy it. When I put it on, I sort of reminded myself of a covered wagon. End of section 20